Well, good morning. Really good to be with you this morning. It's a real privilege um, to be able to come and, uh, and share God's word with, with my brothers and sisters, even though I've never met you. You're my brothers and sisters, and uh, you know, we are able to dwell together in unity, and God will bless us through that. Obviously, uh, I bring greetings from Adelston Baptist Church. That's usually what ministers say when they visit other churches, isn't it? But I mean it. I really do. Um, the, the people there have been praying for you guys, and, uh, and we're really excited about this opportunity. I'm really excited, if I'm honest, about this opportunity because of your teaching series. Um, uh, I love this idea of seeing Jesus through Old Testament eyes. Nathan wrote to me a few weeks ago, and he said in his email, he said, the plan is to give the bigger picture and not to dismiss the Old Testament as boring and irrelevant, but to see the perfect plan of Jesus redeeming creation from the beginning and how we need to fix our eyes on him. Basically, he's preached my sermon. Um, But what a worthy goal. Isn't that just amazing to do that? And um, I'm sure you've been... How long have you been doing this series, by the way? Six weeks? I'm curious to know. I don't know what you've been hearing before. So have any of those messages really stuck in your head? Come on. Somebody. Somebody. Anything? All right, well, I'll do my best to uh, shock you this morning so that something sticks. I don't know. (laughs) If you were to ask anyone at uh, Addison Baptist Church um, about me and my ministry, I think probably what they would talk about most is that I get really excited about the Scriptures. You know, I'm really passionate about, about this book and some of the amazing things that are contained within this. This is just a phenomenal book of promise, isn't it? And what I find amazing about this book of promise is that we get to see these promises written centuries, perhaps even millennia ago, being fulfilled in front of our very eyes. Isn't that amazing? And actually, if you want to point to some evidence of God existing, this is a great place to start. Say, look what was written thousands of years ago and what has now come to pass. That's what I love about your series, because it's joining the dots, it's seeing the bigger picture. And I love that, I really do. It's making all those connections. It was interesting, when Nathan emailed me, he, he listed, he gave me a document full of uh, different subjects that I could deal with. <laughs> which was great and, and, and wonderful. And uh, there are some terrific things that I know you're going to be dealing with in the future. And uh, lots of uh, pictures, signs of Jesus um, that give us that fuller insight into who Jesus is. If it's okay with you, I wanted, to, I wanted to go off on a slightly different tack. It wasn't a passage listed in Nathan's document. <laughs> But I want to tackle a part of the Old Testament that actually seems a little less obvious to do with Jesus. Because there are parts in the Old Testament that are just baffling. There are parts in the Old Testament, chapters in the Old Testament, that if we're truly honest, we wish wasn't there. And if we could just edit them out, that would be helpful to us. They're the parts of the Old Testament that we hope no non-Christians read, because we're going to get some really awkward questions. What do we do with those sorts of passages? So, if it's all right with you, and it's a bit late now, if it's not, I apologise, I want to deal with 
with a passage that is not for the faint-hearted. And I don't genuinely want to give you a warning here. This is a story from Scripture that involves violence, murder, and rape. And, and genuinely, if, if actually you're not in a place to be able to cope with that this morning, I was going to say you could perhaps go for a walk in the lovely sunshine, but the Lord has other plans. Find a coffee shop, maybe. I don't know. But, but I, I, I want to say this. I, I do not want to upset anyone today. That's not the point of picking this particular passage. But what I do want to... To, to, to really unpack is the fact that actually in the darkest of situations, that's where Jesus shines the most. And so if you bear with me, I believe this message will be hope-filled eventually and should be an encouragement to us. Is that okay? Okay, so uh, where do we start? We're delving into the Old Testament. Let me set the scene a little bit. Uh, we're, we're going to be dealing with the end of the book of Judges. So if you have Bibles, it's useful to have them open in front of you. Uh, Judges 19, 20, and 21. And just to give you a bit of context, the Israelites, as a nation, have begun to establish themselves within the Promised Land. Uh, they've done this over uh, several decades um, they've been led by a, a number of Jewish leaders that we refer to as judges. Those leaders have been kind of a mixed bag of leaders, if we're, if we're honest. Uh, some have been really successful. Some have been moderately successful. And if you know the overall story of the book of Judges, there seems to be the, just this sort of cycle of events of success and failure, success and failure, success and failure. The good followed by the bad, followed by the good, followed by the bad. That sort of thing. And, and if you were sort of plotted on a line, you would actually see within Judges, there is, a, there is a kind of a descending of the people of Israel in terms of their moral and ethical understanding. As, as the people establish themselves, a bit like establishing a new church, I guess, in a new place, there's full of, full of excitement and, and, and real focus on the mission of God. And as the people of God settle, they lose their focus. And it all starts going uh, from bad to worse. And, and what actually happens for Israel is they end up being much like what they were warned not to become, which was, don't become like the surrounding nations. Before we know it, they're indistinguishable from the surrounding nations. So that's the general trajectory of, of, of Judges. When we get to Judges 19, we hit an all-time low. And I'm not going to read all the story. It's told over three chapters, and we don't have the time. But I do want to pick out the highlights, or lowlights, if you like. But as, as we read these, these, these verses, just hold on to the fact that this... It's scripture, and it's talking about who the people of God are. Hold on to the fact that this is the people of God behaving in this way. Are you ready? Okay. As they say, gird up your loins, get ready. Chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. There is a telling statement right there. Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. 
After she had been there four months, her husband went to, went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. They took him into her parents' home, and when, he, when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. You wonder why, actually. <laughs> so this is the situation. This, this, this concubine, this essentially a wife of this man, runs away back to her home, and uh, the, the man goes to retrieve her. And there's a bit of a delay uh, the, the, the father of the home isn't keen for the man to leave and uses, uses these various uh, delaying tactics. But then in verse 11, they finally head off back to their home. When they were near Jebus, that's the old name for Jerusalem, uh, and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, no, we won't go into any city whose people are not the Israelites. We will go on to Gabir. Interesting. They refused to go into what was then a pagan city. Presumably they feared for, them, for their safety. They would rather go to a town that was, that was populated by Israelites. I wonder how that's going to work out for them. Well, eventually they, uh, they move on. They get to Gabir. Um, they go into the city center into the marketplace or wherever it may be. Now, of course, this is a, a, a society of hospitality. Uh, as a visitor to, to the town, you'd be expected that someone will come out and give you some sort of accommodation. So they wait there to see what will happen. And eventually, that happens. An old man comes out and says in, uh, what is it, in verse, 20, in verse 20, come to my house, only don't spend the night in the town square. Clearly, the old man knows it's not actually a safe place to be. And so they go to the man's house, spend the night there. Verse 22, while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then he put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb from limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. 
there needs to be silence at that point, doesn't there? Well, the Israelites come up with a plan. They decide that they are going to go to war against the particular group of people that have committed this atrocious act, the Benjamites, one of the tribes of Israel. And chapter 20 tells the story of what takes place. There's a war that lasts three days. 40,000 Israelite soldiers are slaughtered. 25,000 Benjamite soldiers die. And of the tribe of Benjamin, just 600 men are left. The city is destroyed. All the women and the children in that city, even the livestock, are slaughtered. We're talking about genocide. It's a horrific situation. Sobering, isn't it? What do we do with that? Well, in chapter 21, interestingly, it appears like the the rest of Israel, the 11 tribes, start to regret their actions in some form or another. Of course, the, the whole promise to the people of God was, you, Israel, the complete Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, are blessed and will be a blessing. Suddenly, there's only 11 tribes. And it's interesting, in the midst of all this, those 11 tribes have decided to gather together and make an oath that no matter what happens, none of them are going to give any of their daughters to the tribe of Benjamin. They swore that oath before the Lord. And now, it seems, they're kind of regretting that action. Oh no, the tribe of Benjamin is no more. There's no future Israel cannot be complete, and we've made an oath that means they cannot have future generations. They go through this process of of regret and just not sure what to do. So so they come up with another plan. You, You know, you just think, just stop for a minute. Stop coming up with plans. It's not going well. But they come up with this plan, they decide, I know, we'll, we'll try and work out who wasn't present when we are gathered together to make that oath about our daughters. Was there anyone in Israel that wasn't present and therefore is not bound by that oath? Sure enough, uh, there was a, a group of people from Jabesh Gilead. And in verse 10, 10, this is what happens. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with the instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and put to sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you are to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan, essentially to give to the 600 men that were left of the tribe of Benjamin. Of course, there are only 400. That's not going to be enough. So they come up with another plan. Uh, There's there's an annual festival to the Lord at Shiloh, and in verse 20... Uh, They come up with this plan. They instructed the Benjamites, those that were left who didn't then have wives, saying, go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, then rush from the vineyards, and each of you seize a wife from the young women of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. It just goes from bad to worse to worse, doesn't it? And we get to the last verse of the book of Judges, verse 25. And it says again, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did 
as they saw fit. Now, I'm sure that when the writer wrote these things down and and said Israel had no king, I'm convinced he was talking about politically. They had no head of state. I think the Lord's saying something else. They had no king. They had no king of kings. And everyone did as they felt. It's utterly horrific, isn't it? This is the people of God. If you distill it down, what started as the, as the rape and murder of a single innocent woman led to the deaths of something like 100,000 people and the further kidnap and rape of a further 600 women. The people of God. The people who are meant to be a blessing to all nations. What do you do about that? What do you do with a story like that? The Lord said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and all nations will be blessed. Couldn't be further from the truth here. But we believe something about Scripture, don't we? We believe that this is the Word of God, yes? We all all right with that? We believe... We believe that Scripture finds its fulfilment in the person and work of Jesus, yes? Good. So can we find something of Jesus in a story like Judges 19 to 21? Can we see Jesus through the Old Testament eyes of Judges 19 to 21? I believe we can. The first thing we need to do, though, in order to do that, is we need to hold on to some basic truths about God. We believe God is sovereign, don't we? We're all all right with that? God is sovereign. We believe that God is faithful, yes? We believe that, that his ways are not our ways, yeah? That his thoughts are not our thoughts. And we also believe that ultimately God's plans cannot be thwarted, yes? That's what uh, Job says at the end of all his trials and tribulations. God's ways cannot be thwarted. We also believe that ever since Adam and Eve first sinned in the Garden of Eden and hid themselves in shame, that God has been relentlessly pursuing the lost. In that wonderful story of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve hide away in their shame, and what happens next? God calls out, where are you? And I believe God has been calling out to humanity, where are you ever since? So he has plans and he has purposes to save the lost. We need to hold on to these things. We hold on to the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, trusting in his ability to bring good out of every horrific situation. He seeks to save the lost, yeah? So the question is, can we find anything of Jesus in this dark episode in the life of Israel? I believe we can. In fact, actually, as I've been exploring this this week, I've been astounded at how many things have come out of this. And it's been really hard to sort of distill it down. I wish we had more time because we could unpack this in so many ways. I'll try and be brief. I'll try. (laughs) Okay, a few points. Firstly, if you think about it, this story all begins with a seemingly insignificant person born in a place called Bethlehem. 
This concubine is born in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem at this point should just point out it's not a large city. It's a collection of shelters, huts, surrounded by farmland. It's not a significant place at all. But it rings bells in our heads when we hear it, don't we? Because we're able to look back and we discover time and time again that somehow, in God's economy, Bethlehem is always a place of new birth. New birth. So we have this woman from Bethlehem. Don't even get to know her name. She's that insignificant. And yet this unremarkable person then makes a journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem and then beyond. She's then handed over. To all intents and purposes, she is sacrificed at the hands of depraved and fallen humanity. She suffers. All dignity is removed from her. She's degraded and humiliated until eventually she dies with her hands outstretched on the threshold of her master's house. And everything within us, when we read this, screams out, Injustice! How can this be so? The life of an innocent, given to protect others, to spare others from the same fate. And as we're reading this, we're asking God, this cannot be the way, surely. This makes no sense. How can a holy and righteous God allow such a terrible thing to happen? And we're left with that mystery hanging. We don't have all the answers. But having read that, when we then read further into the into the Old Testament, and we come up to some of the great prophecies of Jesus, the great Isaiah 53 prophecy. We, we read similar words, same sentiment. When it comes to Jesus, despite the injustice, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. And this, my friends, is the tension that we as Christians have to live with. Our God is the God of justice, amen? There's no doubt in that. Even even when on the face of it, injustice seems to win. In the midst of injustice, God is at work to restore and to redeem. We then have, of course, in this, the immense tragedy of the events that follow, the the slaughtering of thousands in battle, the destruction of whole families, whole communities, trying to right the wrongs the only way human beings know how, in their own strength. My friends, there is no hope in these chapters. Israel is without a king, directionless, despairing. And and as we get to the last verse, that's how Judges ends. Everything, everyone doing how they saw fit. And so following the woman's death and the battles that follow, is it too much to see an element of 
the Saturday following Good Friday here. Could this be a foreshadowing of the day after the crucifixion, when chaos seems to reign? Have Peter fleeing, having denied Christ three times, so far from being the rock of the church? Judas lies dead in a field, having just committed suicide. The, people, the disciples have scattered, fearing their lives. Grief fills the hearts of everyone who knew and loved Jesus. Where are the people of God on Easter Saturday? They're gone, and there is no hope. God's purposes ultimately seem to lie in tatters. Well, let me put this to you. I believe in the Word of God, all right? I believe in the Word of God. I believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, yeah? You with me there? I believe that through the Holy Spirit, God inspired the authors of the Bible to record what he wanted them to say. And I believe that God still speaks through this to us, through the power of his Spirit. But I'd go further. I also believe in the canon of Scripture. By that, I mean I believe in the books of the Bible, not just the individual books, but the way the Bible was put together. When the Bible was put together, the church met and they prayed. And they sought the will of God and they sought the Holy Spirit and he guided them to assemble this book of the Bible, these books of the Bible. Yeah, the canon of Scripture. Which means that the books of the Bible aren't randomly put together. If you know your Bible, you know that they're not chronologically ordered. Neither are they random. I believe the order in which the books are is God-inspired. You see, something happens at this point in the Old Testament, something truly remarkable. We close the chapter on Judges, and the very next page, Ruth begins. The very next page, Ruth begins. We close Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Very next verse. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Suddenly, we go from the national state of affairs to one single family. Now, we don't this morning have time to really delve into the book of Ruth. Uh, it's a shame, but I'm, I'm trusting that many of you are familiar with the story. Just to summarize, Ruth is a story of a faithful woman, a faithful and obedient woman. And it's a story of God working out his universal purposes in and through this one family. Isn't that totally God's way? How often does he choose one person, one family, and the faith of that family to do global things, universal things? To give you the briefest of summaries, Ruth is a foreigner, a woman from another land who chooses to align herself with the people of God. She chooses to support her destitute mother-in-law, a Jew. And through Ruth's faith and obedience, God works his purposes out, providing for her a husband and a family, 
Now, those of you who know the story of Ruth will know that Ruth eventually meets a guy called Boaz. He's known as the kinsman redeemer. Yeah, you've heard of that before? He redeems Ruth's life. And, and very often you'll hear messages preached on how Boaz is an image of Christ, that he is the kinsman redeemer. And ultimately, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, redeeming our lives from, from sin. Yeah? I'd like to suggest to you that the greater image of Jesus in the story of Ruth is not Boaz, it's Ruth herself. You see, Ruth is the source of hope in the midst of Israel's darkest hour. When Israel could not descend any lower, the shining light of Ruth appears. A foreshadowing, I guess, of the true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. My friends, if you read the story of Judges, do not ever stop at chapter 21. It do, the story does not end there. It's only half the story. It's that, it's that cliff-edge moment that if this was a, 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 a television drama, it guarantees that there's going to be series two. <laughs> if you read Judges, you have to read Ruth. Because Ruth is the Easter Sunday to the judge's Good Friday. You see, Ruth, if you think about it, Ruth leaves her home. She, in many senses, humbles herself as a servant to Naomi. She gives up her rights and her freedoms and commits herself to serve others. And what happens? God elevates her. God lifts her up. He exalts her. He gives her a husband and a family. She now holds the covenant promise to be a blessing to the world. She holds the place of honour. Her great-grandchild will go on to be King David. And then generations later, the true king of kings will be born. From Ruth's line. And Ruth, humbling herself, her obedience, her honouring. Is that not a picture of Christ? Is that not what we see in Philippians chapter 2? You know that great Christ hymn? Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, what did he do? He stepped down from glory. He made himself nothing. He took the nature of a servant. He humbled himself. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hallelujah. What we have here in the lowest point, I would suggest, of all Scripture, is a foreshadowing of Christ. In the darkest hour, when humanity is lost in its sin and depravity, when we read about the people of God, we think, we think to ourselves, how can this be? God faithfully provides a way. God intervenes. He calls out, he cries out, where are you? I'm seeking you. And salvation comes in the most unlikely of places. Did you notice where the story of Ruth begins? Bethlehem. It's the power of God at work, isn't it? Isn't scripture amazing? When you see it like that, the big picture. Now, I'm all for technology. If you've got a Bible app on your, on your phone, that's absolutely great. But it's very easy with, with technology to miss the connections because you Google your one passage and you finish reading at the end. And if you Google, uh, if, you, if you put in Judges 21, you'll never get to Ruth. 
You've got to see the big picture because you see the hand of God throughout history in the big picture. And here's the thing. Here's the, the thing I'd, I'd leave you with. I mean, I hope, I hope as we've shared this that you're filled with just a great awe of, of the wonder of God's plans and purposes. But, but here's the thing. The same God... The same faithful God that was able to work his plans and purposes out in the darkest hour of Israel is the same God who is working his purposes out in your life and mine. The same God who is able to find hope where there is only despair. Which means that there is no situation where God cannot help you. There is no such thing as a hopeless situation where there is no other way God finds a way. He's been doing it throughout history, hasn't he? We see that. We see that. And he ultimately did it through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. My friends, there are many passages in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, where, if we're honest, we're like, what do we do with this? But when we see the big picture, the wider context, we see that through it all, it all points to Jesus, doesn't it? This is the Jesus book from beginning to end, every single page. It's the Jesus book. And I hope that today, through the horrific death of an unnamed woman and the life of a woman called Ruth, we're able to see a little bit more of Jesus through Old Testament eyes. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'll hand back over.